All right, it's Jason here, and I have a special individual joining us today. This is Jake Yates. He's the founder of Bloom Living, and Jake recently did a uh, a deal, uh, which I'm sure he's going to share more about a uh, a real estate deal. Essentially, I think using other people's money. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I know we work together, but I'm sure you have other uh, influences and mentors that you've worked with because you really took some of the things that I was talking about, and I think carved out a. Uh, a niche now that you're building in the short-term rental game. So you want to introduce yourself and uh, maybe share a little bit about what you've done. And then I kind of want to hear your backstory so that we know who you are. Yeah. So I own a company called Bloom Living, as you alluded to. What we do is we buy multifamily assets. Well, now we're buying other assets too. But essentially what we're doing is we buy multifamily assets in Arizona and Tennessee, and we run those deals as short-term rentals. So the laws for short-term rentals are not very favorable right now. And the reason we chose Arizona and Tennessee is because those are markets that are appreciating, but they also have favorable state level short-term rental laws. So we just bought a fourplex. It's in Northwestern Arizona in a secondary market as most people's first deals tend to be in. And we run the deals as short-term rentals. So we're in the process of renovating the unit now. I have an entrepreneurial background. I'm 27 now. The years are going by. Sometimes I forget how old I am. I'm 27 now. I've been an entrepreneur since I was 19, since I went to college. And I dropped out of college at the age of 22 because I had a marketing agency that was doing quite well. It was a six-figure marketing agency. And I, I dropped out of college because I was doing well. And, and then I moved to Las Vegas a couple of years ago. And then when COVID happened, it's actually kind of interesting. I have a bit of a unique story and we can get into it, you know, as this, as this, uh, conversation goes along, but I moved to Las Vegas a couple years ago. And then when COVID happened, I kind of like instantaneously recognized the opportunity for myself. And it's kind of funny because COVID was like a once in a lifetime opportunity, right? Totally. And then directly following COVID, now we're faced with an economic situation that is at the very least potentially a once in a generation opportunity. And at the very most, a second once in a lifetime opportunity back to back. So it's an interesting type of thing where I thought I might want to do other things once I did my first deal, but now the opportunities are so lucrative and there's so many of them out there that I'm forced to continue to work 70 hours a week because of the opportunities. So it's, it's, uh, it's cool. It feels good to have the first one under my belt. And obviously, you know, it's only up from here. I love that. So firstly, I completely concur 2020. That's when I started Bright Utilities. Uh, it was the best year to do deals ever because everyone was, was, was hiding in their basement. Everyone was hiding in their basement. I would get on flights. I'd be almost the only guy on the whole airplane. Yep. And so I remember I secured the financing I did for my first deal in Bright Utilities. And I'm looking at underwriting now in what they're asking and personal guarantees and how much down and the capital stacks and how all that's playing out. It's so much, it, it has been so much worse than it was back in 2020 because there wasn't enough deals. And so lenders are like, hey, I have to get the money out the door. So do you know what? Even though you're not my ideal borrower, Jason, I'm willing to take a bet on you because I don't have anybody else knocking on my door. It's funny right. because now I think it's going to happen again. We're seeing that people aren't applying for mortgages suddenly as interest rates are going up. And people yep. worry about interest rates going up as acquisitions entrepreneurs, but I think it's a beautiful thing. Mm. Um, so we'll have to talk more about that. I love your perspective. Oh, yeah. But you, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you were a farm town guy that came to, you went to college and then went to move to Vegas. You're from Iowa, right? I think you told me back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised you remember that. It's funny because you did your first deal in Nebraska and you know, I'm sure 
uh, yeah, I'm sure obviously, you know, it's a great situation for you. It was also probably not a great situation because I lived in Iowa for my entire childhood. So I know what it's like out there. And so, and so, uh, you know, but yeah, that's where I come from. Uh, I grew up in a town of about 15,000 people and I moved out to Arizona to go to college and, you know, I'm still very young. Obviously Vegas was the only place I've lived besides Arizona, but I grew up mainly in the Midwest. Yes. And it's interesting now because there are more deals and there's more supply in the marketplace, but also the interest rates are higher. So it becomes more expensive. So we're, we're in a bit of an interesting, we're a bit in a bit of an interesting period too, because I don't know if you watch other people and you're alluding to other influences previously. There's a guy that I follow named Patrick, but David, who's been talking a lot about uh, so, so, so real estate crash. And so it'll be interesting to see how the market plays out and what happens because there's more supply in the marketplace now we're still at only 50% of the, of the supply in the marketplace in terms of real estate that we were when COVID started, right? So supply is up, yes, but it's still historically really, really low. And we're also seeing interest rates rise, which will knock down prices. And if inflation goes down too, I think it could be a, a very interesting situation to go buy you know, a lot more uh, assets. So when you initially, when we teamed up and we were, we were working together, you initially were going to go if I'm not mistaken, either into self-storage or into the manufactured housing uh, space. We talked about this a little bit before we, we hit record here, but would you talk through your arc as far as, you know, what you wanted to do when you started in this world of, of looking to buy uh, cash flowing assets and then how you pivoted to the short-term rental spot? What, what got you to pivot? Yeah. So I'm a, I'm the type of entrepreneur that I rely like 95% on my gut. Sometimes my gut's wrong, but like 90 to 95% of the time, my gut's right. And so what happened was I started reaching out to board candidates for self-storage and I hit send on the first message and inside I felt like all torn up. I, I just felt like it wasn't right for me, right? And so I took, I took a kind of a step back. So I kind of have a niche inside of a niche inside of a niche inside of a niche, right? Doing short-term rentals in multifamily in the real estate asset class. And so I just, I always, I wanted to do real estate. So I was going through the M&A education and I had the different sectors listed that I was potentially going to go into. And then four of the five sectors were real estate based. And so I realized early on that I wanted to do real estate and it was just a matter of kind of trying it on, seeing how things felt. And then if it didn't feel right, going on to the next real estate asset class. But um, when I first got started, it's actually pretty interesting because I had moved to Vegas as a 23-year-old entrepreneur making six figures who was unhappy with my social life. And long story short, I, I really fixed that problem for myself to the detriment of my business. So when COVID, ha when COVID happened, I was not in a good financial situation, but then I, I'm, I'm good at recognizing opportunities, right? So in the first week of COVID, I, I made a couple of decisions that I think are really important to my story. Number one, I decided to close my marketing agency because I didn't have any passion for it anymore. And I don't know if you want to need name drop Dan Pena on this video here, but he has a saying that said he, he, it was a video on his website. And he says, the biggest mistake that most of you make is that you should have shut the door, locked it and walked away five years ago. Cause you have no passion for the business anymore. Right? So I decided early on in COVID number one, I'm going to stop doing the marketing agency. Number two, I'm going to do M and a, which is when I bought your course. But number three, since I wasn't in a good financial situation, I said to myself, well, the government's printing trillions of dollars right now. Maybe I could position myself to get some of that money. And long story short, I ended up getting like $185,000 worth of stimulus money. And that really helped me bridge the gap between where I was and where I wanted to be. And so without, 
I didn't, I wasn't expecting it when it first happened. There was three stimulus bills. I was not expecting three of them. My thought process in March was like, oh, maybe I could get like 40 or 50 grand or something from one. And then we can continue to go and we'll see what happens. And then they ended up passing three. And so it ended up working out for me. So it's kind of funny because once you start down a path, if you just keep walking, a lot of times it does end up working out for you because the, some sort of universal thing that seems to reward courageous decision-making. Especially when sustained. Yeah, I yep. totally agree with that. Sustained yep. over time courageousness, it, it pays off really nicely if you, if you don't position yourself like a fool. So you had the, the, the interest in real estate. You pivoted uh, from some of those other, uh, which I think you were really wise to do, by the way, because you look at like self-storage or the manufactured housing space and you know, you're talking to a guy who owns um, you know, a lot of, you know, a number of doors, 30 some odd doors out in Nebraska and it's a nice property and it's doing well. And yet you buy those kinds of properties at seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 times earnings. And then if you're, you're lucky in multifamily. Yeah. It's like, it's like four or five caps. Yeah. It's, it's not a good situation. Yeah. 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 The, the Grant Cardone style, um, 356 unit Fort Lauderdale properties that are being bought at like a four cap. Now that's a whole other world that, I mean, we can't talk about, but the point is, is for somebody like yourself, who I think wanted, I imagine a lot of, you wanted real estate, but you wanted, you know, some legitimate, I'm assuming, cash flow. Cash yeah, yeah, yeah. right? So that was, I assume the main driving force to, to getting into the short-term rental game is because you can do a lot more. You can put a lot more to the bottom by taking a door that maybe does, I don't know, 1200 a month and turning it into 24 or 36 or 4,800 a month in revenue. Is that, that's basically the business model. Huh? I mean, yeah, and we were, we, were, we were chatting about this before, and I don't know your financial situation, but I would venture to guess just from what I know about M&A, if you buy a million dollar plumbing business, a lot of the times you'll probably take home fifteen dollars to $50,000 worth of bottom line profit for yourself, which is great, right? In real estate, obviously, it's a bit more passive, et cetera, but if you buy a million dollar piece of property, you'd be lucky to make $1,000 a month off of it, Right. And so I, I, I did the short-term rental part because when we buy properties, that's a way for us to get into that two to six times multiple range. So we'll make, you know, a good multifamily acquisition is considered like two or $300 of profit per door. And when you run it as a short-term rental with luxury, you know, single family, it's even more, but with the multifamily apart, small apartment complexes that we're doing, it's two to $3,000 of profit per door which really helps because a lot of times, you know, like we were talking about real estate is great and there's a lot of good things about it. For example, I had no problems getting a loan for my deal. I called five banks and I got five term sheets. I would be surprised if I reached out to 20 banks the entire time. Right. But on the other side, you have to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars of equity for every single deal. It's low. You know what I mean? It's low cash flow. And so there are good things and bad things about every single sector. But that's, that was the main motivation for me running this as a short-term rental, as opposed to just traditional. Let's talk about raising the bank finance, which, you know, again, it's collateralized by the real estate. So that probably, as you alluded to, wasn't the most difficult part. But talk about raising the bank finance. And if we talk a little bit about, did you come uh, direct with your business plan as far as short-term rental? Or did you just keep it very vanilla and, uh, and, and raise the bank finance as saying, hey, it's multifamily asset. You know how it's going to cash flow. And so give me the loan. I mean, was there, well, was there I, will, I will, I will be the first to admit that I made some mistakes. Am I allowed to swear on this thing? I'll let it rip, I got absolutely fist fucked by the, the lending institution I went with because I didn't have options when it came to getting a loan. Right. Yeah. And so, because I, I, I got my deal on market, right. 
And so we're kind of, we were kind of locked into a specific, and once the lender knew that we were locked in and we couldn't change it because the seller was being difficult about letting us have a bunch of different lending institutions that we were competing with, we ended up getting a non-favorable uh, loan term. But it's actually funny because we were talking about, before the camera started rolling, about short-term rentals and the slowly legit, the, the legitimacy of the asset class and the kind of the fact that it's in its infancy, et cetera, et cetera. And we were discussing that type of stuff. But when you Google it, there's actually about 20 different, I, I don't think they're banks. I think they're like debt funds. Do you understand? But yeah. they're short-term rental lending institutions that lend based on the short-term rental uh, income that the property could potentially generate, right? And so basically what I did was I just looked up short-term rental funding. I had tried to do, like I was, I was considering for a while some of those Fannie Freddie products that you know, you put 3% down or whatever the case may be, but that would, that really limited us because then we could never get anything over four units. Right. And so we just contacted a bunch of short-term rental um, lenders and funny enough are the, so it, you, and you say this a lot that the best way to raise money for your deal is to have a good deal. And the good part about the deal that we had was that it, it had a high debt service coverage ratio. So as I said, I did not call a lot of these companies. I actually did not even ever, con I, I did never talk to a lending institution that denied me a term sheet. Every single lending institution I talked to, I got a term sheet from, right? Now, the other side of that is you always have to raise equity for every single real estate deal. You're almost never going to get like a seller finance deal, right? I mean, you could, but even then, even if you raise 100% of the capital stack through seller finance, for the purposes of our business model, we still need reserves. We probably still need to rehab it. We need bonuses for our people and we need to furnish it. So even if we got a hundred percent seller finance deal, we would still have to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equity. So for this particular deal, even though the, the even though it wasn't quite a seven figure deal, we still had to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars via equity. And so that was the, the more difficult part. The bank part wasn't so bad, but I'd tell you what, and I'll get into specifics if you want me to, but I will definitely be putting a clause in all of my deals going forward that gives us the leverage to talk to several different institutions at one time. Because what happened was we got locked into one, the institution knew that we got locked into one and the individual that was peddling the loan changed it to a different type of loan where I'm sure he got a higher bonus off of it. Because once he, they knew that they had us by the balls, I mean, they just, you know, which is funny because now we'll never do business with them again and they miss out on future deals. But that's how, that's how it goes sometimes. And I'll be the first to admit, I did make some mistakes along the way, but uh, the bank finance was relatively easy to uh, acquire, at least for us. What was the clause? That I, I'm a little perplexed, I must say, with regard, what was the clause that kept you from talking to other lenders? Was it something you signed with that lender that basically, was it on their letterhead, something that kept you from? The issue with it was the fact that it was an on-market deal. And I used, so I had, we have actually, it's funny, we had a member of our board who is also a short-term rental investor, as well as a real estate agent in the state of Arizona, which is where our first deal happened. And so there's blanketed templates when you're talking about different deals that you put under contract. And so the, the negative to the way that we did it was that I didn't have any direct communication with the sellers. It was agent and agent, and then they would, they would you know, give the terms to us. But the way that the contracts were written, it's like, we are planning to, we are going to be using bank finance from XYZ institution. Oh, wow. Sign on the dotted line, right? Wow. And what actually happened was we had a mortgage broker 
And he seemed on the surface to be a great mortgage broker. And as soon as we put the deal under contract, he said, here are the terms. I said, this is not what we talked about. And so we had to, we, had, we couldn't go with the mortgage broker. And so we kind of had to do some, you know, but that's when I started making calls to short-term rental institutions because we had a broker, right? Which is what you would think on the surface is almost superior to calling the banks yourself, right? But it turned out the terms that he had laid out were not the terms that we ended up getting. So we had to go to, with a different lender. And then they knew that once we signed on the line, because we had to negotiate with the seller just to change the first lending institution that we had to the second lending institution. You understand? So I, like I, we had to get them to sign for us to have the right to change it, which is like one of those things where it's like the real estate has every asset class has its good and bad parts. The good part is that we have this, like the industry I'm in has the strongest on-market deal flow of pretty much any industry, right? But the negative to that is that on-market comes with its own set of pitfalls. But now I know for next time, hey, Mr. Agent, put a clause in the contract in the offer that we say that says that we have the ability to switch lending institutions at our discretion up until the moment we close. So that's as a lesson I learned is unfortunate, but it is what it is. Got it. I appreciate that transparency. That is not something I've really ever seen with Brighter Living or with Brighter Utilities with those two businesses that I'm involved in. The thing is all the agents, since it was a residential deal, they have like these templates, right? That they get and then everybody uses the template and they were both Arizona real estate agents. So they both were like, let's use the template. And of course I didn't know any better at the time. So I was just like, yeah, great. We have something in our contract. I'll just sign it, close my eyes and sign it. You know what I mean? But um, yeah, so that was, that, was a, that was an interesting experience. One thing I'll say too that you brought up I've seen this go bad almost always. Two broker, two brokers on the same deal is is I've never seen anyone on the buy side say, "Oh, there was the buy side broker and the sell side broker, and I loved it," or realtor, whatever the hell we're calling it. I've never heard someone say that it was a good experience. I've heard a lot of horror stories. I've heard your horror story, other horror stories of how the communication gets messed up. It's telephone and somebody says X and by the time it gets over here, it's completely misconstrued. Information yep. even get passed along. They don't deliver what they're supposed to deliver. Uh, the less people in the middle of the transaction. The good, the good news is, and this was blind luck for us, but the buyer or sorry, the seller and the seller's agent both had a lot of integrity. So when we did, when we, when we went to do the inspection, I chatted with the, the sell side agent and you know, she was, she was a nice woman. And, uh, you know, they were stand-up people. They were, they're not the type of people that like to screw people over. And so luckily for us, we, we lucked out with that, but that's why. So for example, one of the, the pieces of infrastructure I'm going to be putting in place before the next deal is a commission only sales individual that will be responsible for the off-market deal flow. Yeah. So yeah. that's the solution that we came up with. Sure. I, I'm a huge fan of that. I've got uh, one of my business partners now, he really started in that position as kind of an off-market deal flow guy. And now we're, we're, we're partners, but he, uh, he, and having that individual or those individuals in your team is, 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 is immense. Okay. So good stuff on that front. Let's talk about the equity side. If you want to talk about it a little bit, because you, you basically alluded earlier that the debt side, because it was real estate. And one of the benefits of the real estate was everyone was ready. All the lenders were ready. All the lending institutions were ready to, to provide you that term sheet. What were your challenges? We spoke a little bit offline about this. What were your challenges with equity? How'd you get it done? And uh, what, are you, what are you looking to do for your, because I know you're, you're going to continue on the hunt for more deals. It was tough. <laughs> this won't make me look good, but it was tough for me to hide. I wouldn't say desperation, but it was tough for me to hide that because it, it got to be a very stressful, right? Because if you're putting a deal under contract, you're getting a term sheet. If you're getting a term sheet from a bank, 
it really doesn't matter if the term sheet comes on Tuesday or if it comes on Friday. But when you have a set date that the date that the deal is supposed to close on, it's like every 72 hours makes a difference, right? And so I'd say the most difficult part for me was the fact that there was just like this ticking clock and I could not get it at, it was in the back of my mind 24 seven for the last four months we were doing this thing. Where it's like May 27, this closing May 27, you know what I mean? Like, and then so it was, it was this, it was this issue where we talked to a lot of people. I think I, I maybe turned some of them off with just uh, the eagerness maybe, but we ended up raising about 200 grand from, from two different investors, three different investors actually. And uh, so it ended up working out, but it was, it came down to the, it came down to the last kind of second um, where the last piece that we got to put the deal across the goal line, basically. So even once you raise money, there's still a process that needs to happen. Just because the money gets in the bank account on Tuesday doesn't mean that you're ready to close a deal on Wednesday because the lending institution, they have their process that they need to go through. Everybody has their own process that they need to go through. And so it basically got down to like the last 72 to 96 hours before we were reaching that point where even if we got the money, it would be too late. Right. And so it ended up coming down to the wire and I, I made, I, I gave away, I gave away more equity than I wanted to, but we ended up getting the deal done. And so now obviously we learned from it. Um, I have an assistant now that you, so we, I would spend like 30 hours a week reaching out to people, right? Now I have an assistant that handles all of that and I just take the calls and it helps me focus on, you know, more long-term solutions, right? Cause I, there's a saying like what helps you in the short term will usually hurt you in the long term. And what helps you in the long term will usually hurt you in the short term, right? And so I was, I was required to, to execute a sh even. So I, I laid some groundwork before because everybody says, you know, they, you got to call the lenders. You got to raise the money from the investors. You got to find a deal and you got to do it all at the same time. But I'm a really big, especially for me, I find that the, if I try to chase two rabbits, I'll typically catch zero of them. So I, I tried to kind of set it up through outreach on LinkedIn, et cetera, for like the 60 days before we put the deal under contract. But I ended up moving off of that just because I wasn't getting the deal flow momentum that I wanted to, because I was trying to do three different things at the same time. Right. right. And so it was just one of those things where I had, I had to give like a short term bandaid type solution to the issue. Um, whereas, you know, now it's, it's, you raise more money. Um, you know, when you play more of the long-term game where you're not asking for money the first time you meet somebody, you're just vibing with them, you build a rapport, you set something up in the future. Maybe you take them to dinner after you talk a couple of times and it's more of a, cause it's, um, I, I actually find a huge overlap. It's more, if raising money from investors is, is more seduction than anything else. I find a lot of overlap between that, that particular, um, you know, task and, and other, uh, I guess things that involve seduction, right? So it's, it's just more of that. And, and, and when you're seducing, you, a lot of times it just takes time, right? For the comfort to build, for the reports, for the reports to, to happen, et cetera, et cetera. So that was the biggest thing is that we were trying to give a short term solution to something that probably required a long term solution. So it, it but we ended up getting it done. And it's funny because I went to a, a, about a month before the deal closed. I went to a fund manager conference and I remember talking to a guy who owned like 60 or $70 million worth of real estate. And I was, you know, I was talking to him about it. He's like, well, if you only got 30 days to do it, a lot of times when your back's up against the wall like that, you figure it out. And that, you know, I ended up doing that, but uh, you know, definitely with future deals will be different strategies. Yeah. I love that. So I've never heard anyone's story 
in getting their first deal done where it's like really clean and perfect. And, and right. the way you go from zero to one is almost guaranteed going to be very different from how you go from one to two, two to three, three to four, et cetera. You have to embrace the chaos. You really do. It, yeah. You have to be willing. It, and it, it categorically will be easier for you to do your next deal than it was uh, to do this one. And you'll get better terms and you'll get, you'll keep more of the equity. Sure. All, you know, it's just, it's a natural byproduct, but you're right. As far as I, I loved what you said about uh, raising equity being something of, uh, of seduction. I, I can, I, I compare it to, uh, you it's like a romantic relationship, right? Um, I love the dating kind of corollary to, to that. And it's true. You need time. You need time. And I think uh, I've given this advice a lot of like, Hey, spend 20 or 30% of your time, just like building relationships with people who have, you know, a high net worth and who have liquidity, who have 401ks, they have IRAs, they have cash, they have uh, underperforming stocks or whatever they have, you know, talk to these folks months in advance. And it, and it feels really anticlimactic because it's, Hey, nice to meet you. I don't have a deal yet, but this is what I'm going to be doing. And Hey, when I do have something, I'd love to be able to pick up the phone and talk to you. I think, um, in, in movie, you know, it's like movies like Wolf of Wall Street. You see Jordan Belfort. He's like, listen, pal, we've got this stock and it's going to the moon. I'm going to need you to get your wallet out right now and let's put the money in and let's get rich. You know, it's like that idea of hammer closing right in the moment is sexy. I think it's like Hollywood glamorizes that. And so I think it's really easy to underestimate how important uh, the romantic uh, period of time is for, for raising equity. So I, I, completely concur. I completely concur. Months. If you can talk to someone and make that introduction and wait months for yeah. capital. And I, I know, so I actually went through this education. Is this guy, his name is Bridger Pennington. I don't know if you've heard of him before. He basically exclusively teaches funds and how to raise equity, et cetera, et cetera. And so a good tip that I got from him was, especially with real estate, right? You're involved in all these Facebook groups. You have a million deals a day in these Facebook groups. You say to this person, hey, listen, I'm a fund manager. A lot of things come across my desk every single day. I'd love to send you some good deals if you'd be interested. They say yes. You send them deals you know, that are good over the course of two or three months. And then eventually you're like, hey, it's actually this really good deal, my fund that we're currently raising money for. And right, that's a good way to do it. Or you can do the whole take them to dinner or whatever, whatever. Like, do you want to be on my podcast, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of different ways you can do it. But yeah, it's definitely more of a, you know, the over eagerness will kill a lot of your seduction efforts in any capacity. And so it's always nice to not have to have it. Do you know what I mean? Thousand percent. The other one I did when I went from zero to one is, and I got pushback for my team because I remember I was saying, I said, look, I don't want capital raising to be the key, uh, the, the thing I'm spending the majority of the time in and doing my first deal, because I know that I need to uh, put twice as much work in for due diligence because I don't know that much about the asset class. At the time I was getting in the manufactured housing sector. I know that there's all these things I'm going to be you know, blindsided by as, as a first time deal maker. And so what I did was essentially gave more equity. I created a thick equity arbitrage and my whole premise and it ended up working was basically this idea of, I want the deal to sound so good to the investor that they immediately say, holy crap, how are you able to give me this? So uh, and it was based on an arbitrage where I basically gave like a two to one split plus a little preferred, um, like 8% cash flow plus almost a two to one. No, 100% right. I actually struggled to raise money for the first two months. And then it, at that conference I was alluding to, they, you know, they were like, you got to increase the offer, et cetera. So it was like overnight, it was like turning on a light switch. I was like, cause I had this offer and I was, and, and the thought process in my mind was like, let's say it's six months in the future. What would be, what would be a bigger regret? 
to hold on to every single precious percentage of my equity and not be able to close the deal or say, ah, I gave away a little too much, but I closed the deal. But and I've got I a track record now. Yes, exactly. And then, I chose the second option and it ended up working out, even though I gave up more than I wanted to. Yeah, that's what, that's what I did. And I, I don't regret it for a heartbeat. It, the video that came to my mind that motivated that strategy was you brought up Pena, who I have a little bit of a love-hate with, but the guy did teach me a lot. But I think his best stuff is the 1990s stuff. The, the stuff oh, 100%. He was so much more enthusiastic back then. Well, there's yeah, a video. Great. Yeah, I loved his old stuff. And there's a video, I'm sure someone can find it somewhere, where he's up on the stage in his three-piece suit. And he's like, give, 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 give. Give equity in your deals. Give away equity in your deals. And I just- He doesn't say that anymore, though. What's that? He doesn't say that very much anymore, though. Hence why I have a love-hate relationship with the guy. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Amen, right? So uh, now it's 100% leverage, 100% commercial debt, 100% commercial debt, all this stuff that candidly, uh, well, uh, the, the point is not to go down the- It the, exists, but it's like, it's like seeing a unicorn or something. You know what I mean? Every deal, look, I was on the record on YouTube saying that 100% seller finance deals are pipe dreams. You shouldn't bet on it. You shouldn't expect it. And then six months later, I did a 100% seller finance deal, which I did do for, for uh, KB Mechanical. Great. It was a one-off. It probably will never happen again. And I still believe that advice of don't expect 100% seller finance deals is valid because if you bet on this unicorn type of a, of a deal, you don't yeah. think about speak to lenders. You don't think about building a, relationship, a set of relationships with a multitude of high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals. Yeah. You're shooting yourself in the foot by expecting this one in a million outcome. So right. prepare uh, for the worst and, and hope for the best. Yeah. And keep, look, keep obviously the lion's share of the equity, uh, you want 51% or more, but like if you have 60% of the deal versus 90%, but you get a track record, like what's really going to matter in the long term? Your first deal is not going to be the one that makes you fantastically wealthy. It's, right. it's, it's a series of, deals. yeah, a series of deals over five, 10, 15 years, whatever your time frame may be. And you get better at each subsequent deal you do as you bring these, these different deals together, you're increasing the exit value. When you decide to exit someday, you're taking a bunch of, I'm going to use more of a business reference, but you're buying a bunch of businesses at three times earnings. And then you package them and build them and integrate them for a decade and you sell it 12 times earnings. Like, okay, so what? You, you only have 60% of the very first deal you did. You did eight or 10 or 15 more deals over the next seven or 10 years. Like, and, and as the asset value increases, you can always refinance them out of the deal. So actually it's funny because this is exactly what we're doing. So when we take the commercial multifamily deals, five units or more, and we buy them, obviously the value of the deal is based on the NOI. But once we flip it to a short-term rental, the NOI is seven times more. So all of a sudden the asset's worth five, six, seven times more than initially, you can refinance the deal, cash the investors out, give them double the money they put in or something like that. And they're happy and you're happy and you gave away the equity, but then you increase the asset value, you refinance them out. And now you have hundred percent of the equity, which is what I'll be doing with this deal. You know what I mean? So maybe I did give up a lot of equity, but in the, in the, in the end of the day, my, my buddies give me a lot of crap for this because I gave up so much. And, but, uh, but I'm going to refinance them. Like eventually I'll have hundred percent equity in the deal. Right. So, you know, it's not, it's not as big of a deal as people would, would maybe make it seem. I think there's a lot of people who keep, uh, who keep from getting across that zero to one threshold because of pride 
because of ego and then of course fear and laziness those are the obvious two but the, the pride in the ego is is i think a massive one where people think well i've done all this hard work like i deserve it's all of this like me 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 focused attention of like what i deserve and what i want and what i need and what i've what i've earned and all it's like the, the market doesn't care what you want the market doesn't care about your petty little ego the market doesn't nobody, care that nobody, you're nobody gives a fuck how hard you tried they only remember if you did it or not you it's either perfect. make it happen or you have excuses for why it didn't happen you know what i mean and it's just like, at the end of the day, that was what I was telling myself too. I was like, nobody cares how hard you're trying. Nobody cares that you're getting low sleep. Nobody cares you're working all the time. You're going to make it happen or you're not going to make it happen. It's being a results oriented person as opposed to, you know, I've tried really hard. I deserve it. Oh, I gave it a good shot. I tried really hard. But did you, you know what I mean? At the end of the day, you either did it or you I, didn't do it. This is my there thing. You there, you, there you go. All right. Like that, that's it. Nobody cares. Work harder. I mean, it's so simple. Uh, but it's very true in this world. I'll, I'll say this as well. This is just macro. And I, you know, cause you and I have gone back and forth before this and you know, you were, you sent something to me about like 2020 was like the best time ever, except like there's another one coming now and in, in 2022 with these great buying opportunities that I think are coming. And part of what makes it so exciting to me is there's not many young people. Uh, you said you're 27, I'm 30. There's not many people in our age cohort that are well ready to do this kind of work that are ready to, to sacrifice and to just do whatever the hell it takes to, to go across, to sacrifice, to work their face off, to not get everything they were expecting on the first deal, and to still say, hell yeah, let me go yeah. buy a few more. And right? I, I have a spoiler alert. The price is everything. Just FYI for anybody wondering. Do you know what I mean? Like you have to give up all of your time. You have to give up all of your energy. I didn't do anything with my friends for months and months and months prior to closing the first deal. I said no to everything. My girlfriend had to like fight and claw to get a couple hours a week of my time. It's the, that's the price is, uh, is everything. And so you got to be prepared to give up everything. Yeah. For Amen. the, at least for the first one. Amen. Internet got a little weird there for a half second, but yeah, basically you have to be willing to bleed your face off, sacrifice everything. You're still, you're still, uh, you're still static by the way. It's just, uh, I? Oh, there you go. There you go. All right, let's roll. So, uh, you got the deal done. You, uh, any big surprises that happened in the couple weeks post-close? I know I had a few. I didn't realize how little management there was in place with my first deal. Uh, that was a bit of, I, I should have known more, but I it didn't really connect um, until after I closed. That was for me. Was there anything for you that, uh, that kind of whacked you over the head and said, welcome to, welcome to the world of, of doing deals? Um, not really. I mean, I got... Uh... I got a lot like once. Uh, so I, I recognized when I was there for the inspection, cause there's only four units. My first deal is pretty, it's pretty, as far as M&A goes, it's a very small deal, but uh, it'll end up being worth, you know, seven figures at the end of the day. But I recognized when they went for the inspection, they were all very like tight knit, very close, all four of the tenants. And so it was kind of one of those things where once one of them got my number, then it was like five different maintenance requests in a day you know what i mean and so everybody had something that they wanted to be fixed etc cetera, etc cetera. and then i had to come after all of them for their i sent the letters to like you pay rent this way then i kind of had to come after them uh you know what i mean for paying it you know because uh, a lot of them you know until you actually apply pressure they're not gonna pay and so there's a lot of uh, shit tests for lack of a better term but it wasn't this whole so i have to i i have to be clear though because I haven't really started running my first deal yet. Yes, we're managing the property. Yes, we started the renovation process. Yes, we're, we're going to be kicking all the tenants out. But it's one of those things where it's like, 
you know, I, ha I have to do a, a little bit of work before it ends up becoming the thing that we had, you know, visualized. And I'm, you saw the deal. It looks like a dump. We're going to be renovating it. Or, you know what I mean? We're going to be painting the whole exterior. We're going to be adding a bunch of landscaping to the outside. And so I will, I will preface it by saying, you know, the real work hasn't necessarily started yet, um, right. but it's, it's, it's about to. But I'm not, I'm not too worried about the operations part of it just because I've been in a, I haven't had a job for like a decade, right? So I have the experience with the operations. I've, I've had contractors work with me before. I've had assistants for years. It's, so I'm not too worried, and especially too, because I have two members of my board that own a ton of short-term rental real estate, and I'll be adding a, a, another board member who is a super host on, on Airbnb and those other, those other short-term rental platforms. I'll be adding another board member in the, in the coming weeks to my team. And so we have the infrastructure in place already where one of my board members made an exit. It was an arbitrage business. But it was one of those things where he would rent out a, a place in Asia is where he did it because it was the highest spread, right? But he exited an arbitrage company. And so he has all the operating procedures, et cetera, et cetera. So luckily, I mean, that's why we build the team, right? Because we need them once, you know, to an extent, especially as you're doing your first couple of deals. So I have the team in place to run the operations, but, you know, the, the, the real work hasn't necessarily started yet. But uh, I, I don't, you know, obviously the, the only thing you can ever count on in entrepreneurship is that everything will go wrong. It'll take longer than you want it to, and it'll be more expensive than you initially thought it would be. Do you know what I mean? So I'm not surprised when shit hits the fan anymore, but uh, I'm sure it will as we continue down this path. Yeah. Amen. And, and I think you're smart to get the, uh, the right team that has the uh... industry experts, in my opinion, are the, the most underrated part of the whole building a deal-making team or building, whether you call it a board, you call it what you will. When it, when it comes to assembling uh, your team that is gonna go out into the marketplace and do deals, yes, having a savvy lawyer is important. Having an accountant that is really good at analyzing tax returns, balance sheets, knows how to look for funny stuff, all of that is important. Having someone who's really good at taxes, yeah, all those things are really relevant, but the industry expert or industry experts, plural, mm. in my opinion, are the game changers because with their yeah. savvy, uh, everything is downhill and without their savvy, everything is uphill. I mean, I did a deal, my first deal, I didn't have a lawyer on my board, as you recall. So it was, uh, you know what I mean? So it's a living testament that you don't necessarily need all those things. I had, I had good intentions and that's a whole other story that I'm happy to get into if, if we, if you want me to, but, uh, yeah, I couldn't have done it without my industry experts, but I am living proof that I did do it without a lawyer on my board. And you know what I mean? So it's, Industry experts are super, super important, I think. And they're definitely the most important part of the team, at least in my opinion. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. Um, and the other thing too with lawyers, it's funny, you go out and get a hotshot lawyer and that hotshot lawyer is used to doing deals between 50 million to 500 million and upwards of a billion. And suddenly you give them a, a $1.6 million purchase agreement or something to that effect on boilerplate, um, you know, kind of a template. And it's funny, but they're not even used to looking at, at an agreement like that. They're used to, 40 pages of, rep, of reps and warranties and 20 pages of indemnification clauses. And here there's, a, you know, there's like six indemnification lines. So they tend to overkill with the negotiations too, which can tend to turn off some of the, the sellers that maybe only own one or two properties. You know, I, I actually, on my first deal and you know, he's still my partner now, but he, he came in hot with this like big lawyer, a New York style of treating the deal. It was almost like you imagine like the eight lawyers like coming into like the old like KKR deal-making team, like they all come in and like the huge suite, like you could tell that was kind of the world where he comes in, comes from. 
And this deal was just like a folksy, you know, barely over a million dollar deal. And it got really, it got really tense, not in a good way where the seller was almost like, do you want, like he was, he was ready to walk, like, screw this. I don't want to deal with this guy. I, I'm not even sure I want to sell anymore. Right. And I made some goofy joke and kind of released tension. And then after the call ended, I talked to my, my guy and I was like, look, I'm sure all of that is just fair play when you're working a $650 million deal, but this is a $1.6 million deal with-, there's with such, Yeah, there's such a thing as the overkill for the negotiations. Yeah. It reaches a point in time where it's better to just be agreeable and likable as opposed to, you, there are times to bring out the ball buster, but it's like, if you're always busting people's balls, then it carries no weight when you, you know what I mean? When you really need it to, to have an impact, right? With an absence, without an absence or without light there, it's all black, right? You can't, you have to have the yin and the yang for that to, to have an effect. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and one thing I'll say too on smaller deals, these kind of first and second deals that people do that, that I've done, that you've done, these sellers are not, these are not always cutthroat people. They're very emotional about their business in many instances. They have a deep tie and connection to their Yeah. You deal with a lot of emotional stuff. Yeah. I got a bunch of, uh, a bunch of income statements on, on word docs for the, for the first year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, finance, baby. Let's do a deal. It made me feel, it made me feel, it made me feel, feel good though. Cause I, I felt almost overprepared. You know what I mean? So it ended up uh, being to the, to the benefit. And we actually ended up getting about $60,000 off the purchase price for the first deal because I had saw somebody say like, once you have it, go take the inspection, you take the inspection and you like, I Google like, okay, XYZ plumbing fix. And then I Google it and it says it's 15 to $300. I say it's $300, right? And you go down the list, you the most expensive, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, but then we took it to the seller and we're like, we need $60,000 off the purchase price. And he's like, okay. I said, damn, I should have asked for like 90 or a hundred or something like that. You know what I mean? Cause he said yes. So quickly on the first try, probably could have gotten more, but that's a whole nother story. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear you. It's funny. I, I would have loved to have negotiated a little harder on, uh, on my first deal. I remember my second deal, I was working the price with the, the seller and I remember I made him an offer and he's like, you're, we was over the phone, you know, at this point, he's like, you're close. And I have a good relationship with this guy. He, uh, he worked around the business for a couple hundred hours after we closed. But I remember I gave him the number. He's like, you're close. You're so close. If you come a little higher, he was just working it. You want to talk about seduction. He was playing the fiddle there with his yeah. feet up on the desk, drinking a glass of cab. You know, he was just having a time of his life. A lot easier to negotiate when you don't need the deal to happen. Thousand percent, which they were, yeah. hence the motivated seller being the, uh, you know, what the total eight ball in a deal. If you have an extremely motivated seller, now you have to ask why there's that extreme motivation. Is it because it's a garbage business or a garbage property in your instance? Right. It doesn't necessarily mean it is, but anyways, so, okay. You've got this deal done. You're in the process of converting it to, uh, to, to short-term from, from long-term. What's next? I mean, are you act? It sounds like you're actively looking for deals in is it Arizona and Tennessee. I think you said, correct? So we're expanding to Tennessee. So as I alluded to earlier, the biggest thing about short-term rentals is the legislation. And we had talked about how it's kind of like the marijuana industry where it's, you know, it's almost like self-storage was 20 years ago. We're just, I say that to say we're like in the absolute infancy of this asset class, right? And so a lot of places, for example, here in Vegas, you would think I live here in Las Vegas that this short-term rental business is just booming. Well, actually in 90% of Clark County, it's illegal to run a short-term rental. And I had a buddy 
who he bought, he bought a, pro a property, put a mortgage on it, and then was flexing on social media that he's running it as a short-term rental. And I'm looking at him like, I know this is in a place where it's illegal to do this. It's not a matter, they have an active task force that are shutting these things down. It's not a matter of if you get busted, it's a matter of when. And then, and then comes the crippling six-figure fine that completely obliterates your business, right? So the cool thing about Arizona and Tennessee is like the way that laws work in America is you have the city laws, local laws, state laws, which supersede the local laws, and federal laws, which supersede the state laws. Well, Arizona and Tennessee are two, or the only two states that are number one in an appreciating marketplace. And then number two, they have state-level protections that say, we have decided and made it clear that it is illegal for a city or a county or a municipality to regulate the way that somebody and restrict the way that somebody runs this property, which basically in plain English means that we can run the property as we see fit, right? And so that's why Arizona and Tennessee, like I said, Florida is the third state, but it's, there's some weird stuff going on with Miami, which makes me, and also Florida, real estate's a lot more expensive than Arizona and Tennessee. So you don't get a big, as big of a bang for your buck, right? So you just buy like, cause it'll make a comparable amount of top line revenue, but your expenses, your debt service will be more expensive. So we, even though Florida is technically the third state with those laws, because of the things that are happening in Miami and because of the asset prices, we're just doing Arizona and Tennessee. My plan now is, and I have a board call tomorrow. I haven't run this by my board yet, but uh, I've decided I want to do it. So it's probably going to happen. We're going to start a fund and we're going to, we're going to, go buy a bunch of this real estate that I was alluding to earlier. The, the, the vision is a hundred doors of short-term rental real estate. Right. And so basically how that's going to work and it's cool. It's actually really cool. It's, it's almost like a magic trick because we're going to buy it for like a million, $2 million. But then once we renovate it and run it as a short-term rental, the NOI is going to be five times higher. And all those properties are going to be worth five times what we bought them for. Right. Yeah. Then we can refinance all our investors out. They get a lucrative return. They're happy about it. Now we own a hundred percent equity in all these deals. And that's kind of like, cause we're still very young, right? We're both in our twenties and it's almost, I view it as almost like a, a really solid foundation, financial foundation to build the rest of my life on. And so that's what we're going to do. And uh, you know, this deal could probably make me enough money eventually to pay all my bills. But now that I've kind of had a taste for it, I, I just want to do more deals. You know what I mean? So that's, 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 that's our plan. And, uh, the cool thing about a fund, cause I found syndications very stressful. Um, cause it's, it, it's just not a fun experience being under the gun like that. You know, I, I can tolerate the stress, right. But I'd rather not if I can help it. And so we're looking to do, uh, it's going to be, um, park owned mobile homes, luxury, single family, single family portfolios, and then multifamily apartment complexes that we're going to be buying in key locations in Arizona and Tennessee. We're looking at an 18 unit uh, now that's right next to a national park gets 12 million tourists per year, but the population of the city is only 4,000 people. So there's a lot of really interesting sub markets in uh, both of those States that we're looking to, to do, do uh, some deals on. So it's, it's exciting. Arizona, Tennessee, those are your two States. The, the state laws protect you. They allow you to do deals. And then what you're sharing as well is that you have the ability to go to these second and third tier markets that otherwise are kind of uninteresting, but they have these really hot tourist destinations. And so my reply to that was, I would imagine that would let you get uh, even a higher spread on some of these properties you'd be buying because people aren't looking to go to a small market like that normally to buy real estate, but because you have a different vision for what that real estate could be compared to you know, traditional landlords or traditional, traditional property buyers, you're seeing disproportionate value in something 
that others aren't that i think that's awesome that's a um that's a unique competitive advantage yeah it's a, it's called the blue ocean strategy which i have never i'd never read the book before but i came to find out that i inadvertently created one of those and it's funny too because in a lot of these sub markets there's such a supply demand imbalance for housing so for example it makes our deal safe because the 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 marketplace we bought our first deal in there was like a 30 person wait list last time there was an open unit available so we can charge like three four five hundred dollars more in rent than what they're getting currently and it's cool because there's two million tourists that come to this location every single year and, but could they come because it's right on the Colorado River. It's a town called Bullhead City. It's right on the Colorado River. On the opposite side of the Colorado River is Laughlin, Nevada, which Nevada has great gambling laws and casinos attract everybody all the time. I, don't, I live in Vegas. I don't really gamble. But, you know, they have like 12, 15 casinos in Laughlin, Nevada, and they get 2 million tourists per year. But Laughlin, Nevada only has a population of 6,000 people. So there's a huge short-term rental supply demand imbalance where even now you're hearing a lot of rumblings about like people like not getting bookings or whatever. But I'm looking at all the comps in the neighborhood we bought in and all the short-term rentals in the neighborhood are still, they still have 85, 90% occupancy booked two to three months out. And so it's a really interesting opportunity in a lot of these places because, you know, the other deal that we're looking at, it gets 12 million tourists per year and the population in that city is only 4,000, right? And so there's just more demand for short-term rental housing than there is supply, which is obviously a great, a great thing for us when we come in and run these deals as short-term rentals, makes it a lot more lucrative. I'm excited for you. I, I knew that, uh, you would be successful if you applied yourself when we first met. And I, I was really stoked when you shifted to short-term rentals because I, I sincerely think there's a much more interesting play to be had than buying a whole bunch of self-storage at a six cap and selling it all for a four cap or buying a whole bunch of mobile home parks at a seven cap and selling it a four and a half cap. Like, yeah, you could do it. You could make money. You know, obviously there's, those are good long-term assets to hold, but there's not a, uh, there's not a home run play there in my opinion, like there is in what you're doing. So I think right. your deals have, you're talking about uh, earnings multiples, right? You buy a plumbing business for three times, sell them for 12 times. You got six of them put together. It's right. kind of the same. It's kind of the same thing here. We're like, we'll get a higher multiple once we flip it to short-term rentals. But then also as the asset class legitimizes, I predict, and of course I could be wrong, right? But I predict that we'll see cap rates start to compress as the asset class becomes more legitimate, right? Much like we're seeing in the multifamily sector now, where we're seeing things sell for like a three cap. Grant Cardone's buying these things for like a, literally like a three cap. And so I think that as we, cause I, this is what I tell everybody who's considering, they're like, what's our exit play here, right? We can't sell this four unit property cause it's residential multifamily. It doesn't matter if it's making more money. I said, no, we're gonna sell a portfolio of all these properties put together right? So we're going to get a premium for this specific property. And as we put it more together, the multiples increase further. And then as we hold it, as the asset class comes more into the mainstream, then we'll see the cap rates compress even further. So I'm excited about the potential because maybe even, you know, maybe even as running it as a short-term rental, we still wouldn't make as much cash flow as if we bought a million dollar plumbing business, but we could create a significant amount of net worth for ourselves because we're going to be increasing the, 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 um, the, the price of all the assets, right? Through the process of consolidation. And one thing that you have the ability to take advantage of that, for example, I won't is, as you said, <clears throat> you're in a, 
you're, you're at an early adoption stage within a, a new and, and quickly budding asset class. We saw this with self-storage. We saw it with uh, the mobile home park business, excuse me, where you saw cap rates compress over the last 20, 25 years. It wasn't just because it was a low interest rate environment, though, yeah, that had a play. But a lot of it was assets like self-storage and the mobile home park uh, assets. They became uh, far more accepted. You, I'm sure you've seen like the adoption curve. Where it's like the super early adopters, early adopters, middle, late, and then super laggard adopters. You know, self-storage and, and mobile home parks 25 years ago were like pretty far out here on like the super early adopter stage. But you saw that move to where right institutional investors and retail investors alike adopted those assets. And you see the, the cap rates compress. So if the same thing happens with, with short-term rental, which I think, I mean, you see a lot of young people. I mean, there's plenty of ads that have been ran on like, hey, like, let me show you how to like do the Airbnb hacks and stuff. So it's like young people recognize it. And, yeah. you know, obviously as that continues to move towards the, the middle of the normal curve, um, I would imagine, I would imagine what you're talking about. I, I see the logic in what you're saying, that, that, that the cap rates could, would compress simply as a basis of more people accept. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, especially too when you, own the assets you get the you can get the no taxes on the income you make you can get the appreciation the principal pay down versus if you just arbitrage it all you get is the cash flow which is even less than what you would get if you just bought the asset you make way more just the tax write-offs one of the great things about real estate are all the tax breaks that you get right so you know owning yeah you're doing what you're doing to me is far more interesting than the idea of i'm going to go lock into five leases and play that arbitrage it's a cash flow play certainly but if you don't own the property, the landlord can change their mind. Change the HMA can change their mind. Yeah, it's not a good situation. No, what you're doing has actual real leverage. You own the thing that you're deploying uh, yep. or converting. So, dude, I love it. Uh, anything else that you think we should uh, we should dive into before we uh, we roll? I mean, we talked about how you raised your money. We talked about what your long term plan is. Talked about uh, your story. Anything else that that's top of mind uh, for you right now? Hmm. Not really. I mean, I have a lot to say on the topic. And so I'll, I'll be putting out my own content over the course of the next couple of months. But I think in the context of just exploring how I went zero to one, it's, I think I said everything that, uh, that I wanted to say. And definitely, if you ever get into the, the short-term rental game, let me know and we can, we can discuss and I'm happy to bring value in any way that I can. And hopefully this, this uh, conversation brought value to, to whoever, you know, ends up watching it. So I it's been a great conversation. Maybe we'll do another one of these sometime down the road once uh, you continue to ascend as you are. And, and as I told you before we recorded, I have flirted around with the idea of um, buying condos here in Tampa Bay and, uh, and renting them out at some point. It's something that it the is- only issue, The only issue with condos is the HOA. Got it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, like, um, yeah. So like, for instance, I live in, this is a condo right here that I live in, but uh, the HOA said that you can do short-term. Actually, you know, if it's in a good location, like for example, here, you can't do short-term rentals less than 30 days. But if you do short-term rentals 31 days plus, then all of a sudden they'll let you do it. And you have people, you know, I, for example, this apartment here, a lot of these are places are like 2000 to $2,500 in rent per month. But a lot of these short-term rentals are getting five, six, seven grand, you know? And so you can still do it even in the context. I would never do it under an HOA just because I don't have, I really do not like not having control over things. Right. And so the idea that somebody could just come in and shut me down is not, uh, is not very palatable for me, but there, there are people who are definitely doing it very successfully. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Right. I, I, I did some homework on where I live as well. And I was looking at the, uh, what I pay. And then I was looking at how much it would, it could go for if I did a short-term rental. And yeah, there's like a three to four X multiple, it looks like. So I was, 
it's intriguing. But anyways, okay. So you're at bloomliving.co. Is that your website? Yeah. Have you looked at my website, by the way? It looks eerily familiar to a website that, uh, they say good artists copy and great artists steal. So, <laughs> you know what? It's nice to see someone who has one that looks like mine, who's had some success. I had a couple of people that didn't do anything who had a website like mine. It's like, if you're going to have, if you're going to have your website look like mine, be successful. So now that you're, it's, dis you're it's disrespectful if you copy and then you don't end up getting yeah, it done, right? You're going to copy the website. Then come on now, knock them dead. Uh, what's the plug though? Where do, um, where do the people find you? It's Jake Yates on Instagram. Happy to connect. And uh, I'll just say this personally. I mean, I'm happy to help anybody who has any questions. Um, but I just, I don't possess the empathy that you probably have to deal with the consulting side of it. So I have no program to sell anybody, right? I have nothing, I have nothing to, to offer you in that regards. But if you're, you know, a hustler and you are, are taking a lot of action towards it, I'm happy to help any way I can answer a couple of questions, shoot me a message. My email is jake at bloomliving.co. So reach out, you know, if you guys have any questions or I know that there was a couple of people in some of your calls that were also doing apartment complexes. So I'm happy to help, you know, any way possible. I have a buddy who's doing a, a fund of funds by investing in short-term rental funds. So he has a, a, like a blanket fund and he invests in other funds. And so I've helped him out a bit in terms of his outreach to investors, et cetera. And I'm happy, happy to help out, uh, anybody else. And I guess, you know, you ask what I, I will say one thing because a lot of, a lot of the, a lot of my friends are into the, the crypto stuff. Right. And I tell them about what I'm doing in the M and a world and the, in the real estate, et cetera. And I think this is a good piece of advice for people. Cause it's like, I tell them what I'm doing and they're like, oh, that sounds really hard. And I'm like, that's the exact reason that you want to do it. You the only reason you want to do it is because it's hard because nobody's willing to do it. And once you do it, now you have that moat where it's like, you have to build the board. You have to find the deal. You have to raise the money. You have to go to the, the fucking bank. You have to figure out the operations. It's like all these things just to even be in the same game. Obviously I'm like a, I'm like a neophyte in this new world that I find myself in having, you know, I'm like uh, what the, the, uh, the poorest person in the room. Right. But at least I'm in the room, you know what I mean? And so I think that the fact that it's so hard is the exact reason that, that you should do it. And uh, if it's hard, it's supposed to be hard. You know what I mean? If somebody's listening to this and it's, it's, they're like, oh, it's really hard. It's supposed to be hard. And that's the exact reason you should do it because that's the mode around your castle. So percent. That, there's no better words to be said after, after that. So let's just cut it. That was gold. Cheers, Thanks. man. Let me know if you're ever in Vegas. I will. And if you're ever in Tampa Bay, it's mutual. All right. All right, man. Cheers. Cool, man. Take it easy. Peace.